remember thinking almost immediately uh, after my C-section that it was not something that I ever wanted to do again. I actually think right away something told me that, you know, maybe I got pregnant this time around just to do this whole thing over again and maybe have a chance at having a natural birth. I knew I wanted a VBAC and I I remember just starting to research right away. What do I do to make it work? You know, it's very intimidating. He said, you know, if you were my wife, I would not recommend that you do it. You know, there is a risk of of uterine rupture. I, I sort of, I think I felt very emotionally protective of myself. And then I went for my six week postpartum visit and I remember having the doctor look at my C-section scar and there was something that she just kind of quite didn't like about it. And so she said, you know, don't worry about it. We'll fix that um, with your next C-section. And I looked at her and I said, oh no, uh, that's not something I'm planning to do again. And she said, well, that's what we recommend. That's kind of, uh, you know, the route that women usually go. And I said, oh no, no, that's not the route that I'm going to go. And uh, she looked at me with a little smirk and I thought to myself, I'm out of here. I think I was afraid of maybe being in labor for too long and then having a C-section. I've always felt like that would be like a worst kind of case scenario to labor for 20 hours and then end up with a C-section. So I think that was a bit terrifying. I also wanted to be at a birthing center. And I also had the midwives really backing me and supporting me. They never once gave me any indication that having a VBAC was something that I couldn't do. I was lucky enough to have nothing but support when I decided to have my VBAC. Um, I think that people saw what I went through with my cesarean and probably knew me as a person. I was not going to intentionally put myself through that process again. I got a lot of support from my friends and I had an aunt that had had a C-section 25 years prior and then had two successful VBACs following that birth. And she really uh, would sit with me for quite some time and just go over her story. (laughs) Like, let me ask all the questions I could. And uh, that instilled a lot of confidence in me that she could do it and I could do it too. You know, I think everybody was just so shocked. Um, you know, we have family from Europe and, you know, actually at that time when I was pregnant the second time around, we were visiting um, some of my husband's family and everybody was just kind of like, oh my gosh, that's not allowed. You know, nowhere else in the world would they ever allow you to have a V back. And um, I'm like, yeah, but, you know, um, they told me I was actually a pretty good candidate for VBAC. So anyway, I I think it was very difficult to get anybody to be excited for you, I guess, or like give you some reassurance. There was none of that. Um, I think, you know, everybody was just kind of questioning and surprised. And my midwife really um, was so great about checking with me multiple times to, to really reassure me that she knew I really wanted to have a VBAC. She really was so great about making sure we were on the same page. Once I spoke to my midwife at the first appointment and she told me um, that, you know, it's almost like your second pregnancy is totally different than the first time around. This is like a brand new pregnancy. And, you know, as long as the baby's not breached, you will have a vaginal birth. And, you know, I think it helped to know that their statistics were um 
you know, quite good. Um, they had a really high success rate of VBACs at the practice. So that certainly reassured me and, you know, supported me throughout the entire pregnancy. Never did I doubt that I couldn't do it or it wasn't possible or it was dangerous in any way. Every birth is different. You know, just because it, your first one went one way, the second one will be completely different. Um, and I have you to thank for that, Cynthia, um, because that's something that you told us. My midwife was very clear that, you know, it's a different pregnancy and, you know, I'm not more likely to have a breech baby just because my first one was a breech. So again, all of that support from midwife and doula was awesome. When my baby's head emerged, I was shocked. I mean, (laughs) it didn't make any sense. I'd been in labor for over 24 hours and I was exhausted and um, but I guess subconsciously, you know, even though I've been pushing and they're saying that, you know, she was coming, she was coming, I guess subconsciously I just didn't believe that I was actually going to be able to do it. I thought that I would end up in a cesarean just like with my first. I had worked so hard to get myself physically and mentally prepared for that VBAC. And when it was successful, and I had all of these women standing around me kind of congratulating me. I thought that I was, to sound really cliche, on top of the world. Since then, anytime I'm feeling low or um, I, I'm doubting myself or I need a boost of confidence, I actually go back and I replay the memory of my VBAC. So when she was born, I, I just, I really was shocked and I was just full of gratitude and full of joy. Um, that I was able to experience um, her birth this way. I felt amazing. I felt I could do anything. I truly thought it was something that I meant to experience when I got pregnant the second time. You know, I, I couldn't believe it. I hope that for the rest of my life, I never forget the moment I had my second son and how empowered I felt. I really hope I don't ever forget the feeling that I had of accomplishment and empowerment for myself. It was the single most empowering moment of my entire life. I just kept thinking to myself, wow, I did it. Wow, I did it. (laughs) It's like I couldn't believe it. Um, I actually did it. (laughs) If I knew how beautiful and easy the delivery would be, (laughs) I I would, I wish I, I could tell myself, like, just believe in myself more. But it's so hard to believe in yourself in the face of people telling you it's probably not going to happen. What ended up happening after my cesarean was I put myself in a position of feeling like a failure. And I thought that having a VBAC would undo that feeling, that I would feel successful and no longer a failure, that it would almost like replace those memories. But in actuality, what having a VBAC did was it gave me an appreciation for both scenarios. Without the first event, I couldn't have had the second event, and I wouldn't trade either one at this point for anything. Um, I think I've learned a great deal from both, and I am really glad that I never forgot and and I didn't replace that memory of um, kind of what I went through with my cesarean. I draw from both experiences Um, a great deal of strength. I will always be very grateful for both of their births, for what they taught me, respectively. And I am so thankful that I had an opportunity to have my second birth vaginally. I'm 
Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board-certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth Podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. Trisha, what struck you as you listened to those? It has to be how every single woman in every single story, you could just hear how empowered they felt by their successful VBAC story. Yeah, and I think what I've seen over the years is that, you know, VBAC usually does seem to work successfully. It certainly has in the community that I've I've been in all these years, but I think what matters so much is that women be given a true trial of labor, that they really feel they had the support that could have brought them there because even when it doesn't result in that beautiful inspired VBAC, the women can still feel at peace that they truly had the space and freedom and information to experience one if it was in the cards for them. I've worked with dozens of women, maybe between 70 and 90 at this point, who've had successful VBACs. And I've certainly formed my own observations around this. Um, Trisha, what's the VBAC rate in our country right now? So currently it's right around 13%. That's all. And that's all it is. That's all. But, okay. but what's really important to point out is that of those 13% of women who do trial of labor, 60 to 80% of them will have a successful VBAC. So if we have this really high success rate, it's, it, that's a pretty good success rate. Those are decent odds. For sure. Our, our, our numbers are still very low. So this is no joke when I tell you, you know, I've been, I've been teaching since 2007. I have not had one single year in my work where I've taught, let's say around 100 to 125 couples a year, most of the years that I've been teaching. I haven't had a single year where the VBAC rate was under 95%. Almost every year I've been teaching the VBAC rate was 100% of the women who came into this community, some of whom had two C-sections. Why do you think that is? I think it's because they found the right providers. I really do. And they got educated. And they got educated. But I'm going to tell you that, yes, of course, that's important. And you're going to cover that some of that important education in this episode. But I will tell you, one of those women only birthed with an obstetrician. And there was one year, the year that I had the most, the greatest number of VBACs in my business. I think it was, um, I think it was 16 women. Half of them birthed at home. And these were women who never dreamed of birthing at home initially. In fact, to birth at home after you've had one or two C-sections is really daunting. And that year, I had two clients who had had two C-sections, and both of them ended up birthing at home, not because they wanted to initially, because they literally couldn't find support anywhere else. They couldn't find a single obstetrician who supported them in having a vaginal birth after C-section, after two C-sections. So I really think that almost all roads lead to, yes, being informed, but having support from the provider because it doesn't take much to scare the heck out of us away from wanting to have a VBAC. I think what you could hear in those women's stories is just support, support, support. And sometimes we say rule number one, if you want a VBAC, is do not go for your VBAC with the obstetrician who gave you a C-section. Even if you had a C-section, 
for good reasons. Like one of those stories I know involved a woman who had full placenta previa. That's a good reason for a cesarean section. Another was a breech baby. Another very legitimate reason for a C-section. But sometimes we just want to wipe the slate clean, form a new relationship, and really embed it into our minds and our bodies that this is a new experience with none of the triggers of the initial birth. I would absolutely agree with you on that. Um, I mean, unfortunately, we're digging ourselves out of a kind of a hole with VBAC. VBAC rates really, really dropped off in recent history. And now we're sort of climbing back up to um, being more VBAC supportive. Unfortunately, ACOG and ACNM are both... They're coming around. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I mean, especially ACOG, ACNM has always been supportive. But ACOG is really stepping up their support mm-hmm. of VBAC. So we're just sort of like climbing out of this VBAC hole, I feel like we're in, where the rates were very low. We're climbing out of an age of misinformation because in the yes. 70s, women were told, and before the 70s, women were told once a C-section, always a C-section. But even now, you still have women who go to that first prenatal with their next pregnancy and they hear the term uterine rupture, which I think is such a great injustice because first-time pregnant moms never hear the term uterine rupture, and they also are at risk of uterine rupture. And it is only a little bit higher for women who've had prior cesarean sections. It's not nearly as high as women believe. It's less than 1%. Yeah, it is. And the interesting thing, just to put it in perspective, because sometimes for mothers it's hard to understand. We need, we need to understand relative risk. It's hard to just kind of comprehend the numbers. What does that mean? The risk of uterine rupture is very, it's actually lower than the risk of other things like um, placental abruption or cord prolapse or even a shoulder dystocia. So all of those things can happen in any labor. And we get so hung up on this idea that if we're going to VBAC, we're, we're putting ourselves and our baby at risk because of uterine rupture. It's not that you can wipe that risk off the table, some people are extreme in that direction and say that, you know, uterine rupture is so rare, I'm just going to have a VBAC no matter what, I'm going to plow through it no matter what. We have to make smart choices. We have to educate and inform ourselves so that we make the safest, smartest choice for ourselves and our baby. And it's all too common, though, that the, that the, that the myth is that uterine rupture, the risk of uterine rupture is so high. In some cases, providers will say it's one in four chance of uterine rupture. That's 25%. It's nowhere near that. It's nowhere near that. But the, but women are told that, and that will scare any woman away from... So can I tell you something? I don't think I've ever told you this, and it's just so, it's so unethical. I had one client a couple of years ago who went back to her obstetrician, the one who gave her the C-section in the first place, and it was for... Uh, failure to progress, which as we know is not really a med- it's not a medical indication and it is not a good reason for the, a C-section, but it is the number one reason for C-section. And I don't recall any other factors around that birth other than the duration of her labor. At that prenatal with her second baby, when she asked about VBAC, Trisha, her obstetrician showed her a video of a woman in labor experiencing uterine rupture. What? What? Wow. Talk about the fear factor can right be- there. Can you believe someone did that? No, I can't believe somebody did that. But the other thing that can really scare women away from it is their provider might say something like, you know, if your uterus ruptures, your baby's going to die. Yeah, right. Or you're going to die. And that is not true. Right. It's not true. Uterine rupture is risky, sure. But 
it's not, it's not a death sentence for baby or mother, not even close, right? It's something that sometimes just happens in birth. And this is something we can see signs of if a woman is having a trial of labor and a VBAC, right? I mean, don't, isn't part of the whole approach to manage that risk anyway? Part of the whole approach is to manage that risk, but unfortunately there is no solid formula for doing that, nor is there any really consistent indication of uterine rupture. It can go, it can be missed. And that's part of why it's problematic. There are signs, sure, but there's no guarantee that um, if you're, if you're experiencing a uterine rupture that you're going to know about it. So first, let's just talk about who's a good VBAC candidate, because I think this is a a question on every woman's mind who is considering it. And is it right for me? And I think it's important for mothers to know that almost everyone is a good VBAC candidate. There are a few absolute contraindications. A contraindication means absolute no, no VBAC for you. Um, That is based on the type of uterine scar you have. So if you have a very old fashioned type of uterine scar, VBAC is not recommended. What is an old-fashioned scar going to mean? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no one who's had a 150-year-old scar is going to go for a VBAC. So what are you talking about? <laughs> How old-fashioned are we talking here? Okay. <laughs> I don't know. The scars from the 60s or whatever, the classical or the inverted T-shaped scar. Okay, Which they, they just, stopped doing, didn't they? For C-sections, yes, but women can sometimes still have that kind of uterine incision if they've had a fibroid removed. I see. Or or other type of uterine surgery. Okay. So if you have that kind of scar, it's a no-no. If you've had a prior rupture in labor, it's not a good idea. If you have a transverse lie. I mean, some of these things, or you have a placenta, uh, a creta or a previa, some of of these things are just things that are contraindications for vaginal birth. Right, for any birth. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But outside of that... Most women are good candidates for, v- for VBAC. But Trisha, what if she got pregnant eight months after her C-section? Because isn't there normally a rule of about 18 months? Is that backed by it, evidence or what do you say about that? There is a recommendation that to optimize your chances of a successful VBAC, you wait 24 months between pregnancies. 24 months? Two years. Oh, a lot of my clients have been told 18 in the past few years. So I wonder, I just wonder what the evidence shows. So like I say, so much of this is just cultural and like the, the word of the day. And Um, it's constantly, I mean, ACOG is updating their guidelines very frequently as we're learning more. So, um, that's not to say that if you are under the 24 month mark that you can't find a provider who will support you if you are a good candidate on all other levels. Um, other things that help to have a successful VBAC are to allow spontaneous labor. So we, we know that inducing or even augmenting, augmenting meaning having Pitocin to speed, speed up your labor, those are two things that definitely decrease the chances of a successful VBAC. That is true for a first-time birthing woman as well, for sure. Right. In fact, Pitocin yep. hasn't been FDA approved for that purpose of just speeding up labor. Right, even though it's very frequently Widespread, used. yep. Having had a vaginal birth prior to your trial of labor, so if you had a vaginal birth, then you had a C-section, and now you're going for a VBAC, that is a definitely a plus. So a lot of the challenge is just to combat the misinformation because what so many women encounter is a scared partner who's been through the trauma of a C-section in the past or scared family members 
And that is a lot for a woman to overcome as well. So yeah, back to what Trisha said, having information is the starting point. And then that helps to make getting the support easier. But sometimes when you really can't get the support you need, sometimes you have to draw the line and have the resolve within yourself to plan your own birth. Like just to take true responsibility for your birth when you know you're sufficiently informed. It's hard. It's hard for women when their sisters have had C-sections, when their mothers are afraid, when their partners are afraid. I've had one, I think only one, but I've had one father in class once over these years who who started to cry and talk about the trauma he experienced when his wife had a C-section the first time around. It was really overwhelming for him and really intimidating to him. So we carry a real emotional burden into this process. I think, it, I think it's really, really hard um, to for women to do something that they think is putting their baby or their themselves at risk, but especially their baby. Um, and like you said, getting the right information is very powerful because if we look at the actual risks to mother and baby of a C-section or repeat C-section, they're significant. That's right. And no one ever talks about those risks. And exactly. that, this is my argument with everything. It's like when women are convinced to be induced without a medical indication, it's like, well, let's not take any chances. Let's just induce you. And no one ever talks about the risks of that induction. The same thing exists here when we're talking about VBACs. So we overemphasize the risks of VBAC and we underemphasize the risks of C-section. And then we also downplay the benefits of having a vaginal birth. We don't think about the earlier skin to skin contact. We don't think about the higher rates of exclusive breastfeeding or breastfeeding initiation. We don't think about the ho- the shorter hospital stay for the mother or the decreased risk of infection. We don't think about the lower rates of postpartum depression. Right. Or the easier recovery in a vaginal birth most of the time. But it isn't fair when women hear comments like, what do you have to prove? You don't have to be a hero. <laughs> as if she's, as if that's all this boils down to, when this can be an intensely satisfying and gratifying experience, as we just heard out of women's mouths at the, in the beginning part of this episode. And you if know, you do want to be a hero, more power to you. You know, do I, it. <laughs> I texted these women and said, hey, just send me a voice memo and just answer this question. You know, how, what made you decide to have a VBAC and how did you feel afterwards? And I did not expect them all to come in with the same answer, empowered, empowered, empowered. But well, that's all, that's, that's all I heard in those stories. Everything that I was feeling listening to those stories was the feeling of empowerment they were experiencing. I think what's worth discussing in another episode though, is that we sometimes think if the C-section was traumatic and that was not the case for Um, half of the women at least who contributed to this episode that's not the case for everyone Um, we sometimes think the VBAC will heal the trauma from the first birth and that is not necessarily true and I I only learned that from running cesarean support groups for so many years I remember one of my clients had two c-sections and then she had a really quick lovely easy home birth for her third and I remember I was so much less experienced back then. This was like 10 years ago. And I remember just thinking, oh, thank goodness. I'm so happy for her. Ah, like what good news for all of them. And then I remember seeing her and talking to her in that support group setting now that she was on the other side of her successful VBAC. And I remember how much she hesitated and said, what I didn't expect was that I would still have to continue processing my first two births. 
And that mm. was real growth for me because mm-hmm. that thought had never crossed my mind before. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I would, I, I would, would think like you that replacing a negative experience with a positive experience would help negate the negative experience. But that doesn't mean that you can just, you know, jump over the fire and forget the negative experience. It, it doesn't work like that. You still have to process the grief of of the traumatic experience. You still have to process whatever emotions you experienced. Yeah, there was another woman in that group once who I respected so much for being willing to, sh- to share this because this would not be an easy thing for any woman to share. But her second birth was so wonderful and empowering and gratifying. And she said she had moments where she was home with her two boys, the one who was born by C-section and the one who was born vaginally. And she said she had moments where she had to say to herself, wait a minute, I don't love them differently, do I? I don't love the second one more, do I? And she would say, no, okay, we're good, we're good. But sometimes women are afraid to pursue a VBAC because they are a little bit afraid of the guilt that may come with knowing one child is having um, a, more, a potentially more satisfying birth experience and potentially less traumatic birth experience than their older sibling. And that takes a lot of love and courage for a woman to be willing to do as well. That's an uncomfortable thought that one of your children went through a harder labor than the other. But these women are willing to, to have their best birth each time around, despite that potential guilt that they know they may experience. I think it says a lot. It sure does. It's just I very mean, powerful. That's, that is. Yeah. So I think it's just such an injustice when we dismiss these women like, you don't have to prove anything and don't be a hero. It's like, you have no idea how complex this is for women. You have Mm -hmm. no idea what they go through to come to these decisions. And we can't presume to. It's a very personal decision. And if it feels right to you, then the next step is education and support. And you will continue to make the right decisions for yourself, no matter what birth you pursue. That's absolutely right. We want to thank the women again who contributed to this episode today. I know for each of you, a VBAC would not have been possible had you not heard at least one inspiring, successful VBAC story yourself. And by sharing your stories today, you've now provided that to many other women. This is how we touch each other's lives just by sharing our stories. So just once again, want to thank those women who shared theirs today. And this conversation is something that we want to continue. This is not the end of the VBAC conversation. There's so much to say. There's so much to share. And if you have any comments about this episode, if you feel there's any point that we may have missed, any emotion that we didn't touch upon, um, just message us through Instagram at Down to Birth Show or through our website at downtobirthshow.com. We'll tell you how to contact us and contribute your own comments for us to play in a future episode. I think you know Zoo accused me of having too dry a sense of humor that people won't be able to relate to. You stump me with it all the time. I, I still stump you. It's so it's no. so surprising. No, you really don't anymore. Zoo is like, you really are dry. I don't think people are going to get it. And I said, I don't know what choice I have. I can't change it's my who humor. You are. But I texted with one of these women who contributed the VBAC. And I said that Zoo said, uh, I'm too dry. She's like, I always understand your humor. And I was like, thank you. At least someone. She said, I love the outtakes. I love the mistakes. I love hearing everything on the back of the scenes. But she's like, I don't think your dry humor is lost on me. So with that one listener, and thank you, Jen, because I know you're listening. 
and I know you listen to the outtakes. With that one listener, I have the confidence to uh, remain <laughs> to be free, you, <laughs> to be me, to be dry <laughs> with my humor. Yeah. All Glad right. to hear it.